This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And of course, on the phone is co-host Alan Niven. And we have got a very, very interesting show for you. Uh, sort of the best of the UK and the best of Canada from the Wild Hearts. We have, of course, Ginger. Their new album, Renaissance Men, comes out in May. And on the other side, we're going to have Canadian Gino Vanelli. You might know him best from I Just Want to Stop or, of course, Black Cars. And he has a new album out right now called Wilderness Road, available immediately. But Monsieur Neven, bonjour. Comment allez-vous? How are you? Très bien, merci. And how are you? Good, good. Life is good. Uh, the The weather up here has uh, is 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 not frightful. It's uh, delightful, actually. We're we're getting into our twenty degrees Celsius, for, which I guess is what seventy in the states. Which is I, I can live with getting that. Up there. Yeah, yeah, I I can live cold. with that. So here's the thing: the Wild Hearts had this incredible career in like London. You know, in North America, we don't really seem to know them, though they did come through here a few times, the last time opening up on a major tour with The Darkness. But UK folks just love them. Them and Thunder and some of those bands, Status Quo, they just got these, these this great sort of reputation over there. Lots of great albums that they've put out over the years. Earth vs. the Wild Hearts, F-U-H, no, pardon, P-H-U-K, which of course we pronounce Fuck, uh, Fishing for Luckies, uh, The Wild Hearts Must Be Destroyed, and, and all that. But they're not a band that you're overly familiar with, from what I understand. No, and that's probably an aspect of timing. I've got a, a sneaking suspicion they might have been on a bill with GNR one time over there. Um, and I could be wrong. I mean, it's a long time ago. But, yeah, it, it's interesting because you definitely put your finger right on... Um, an interesting anomaly. You know, you mentioned status quo. Um, one band I would mention is Dr. Feelgood, who I loved with a passion. Um, Wilco Johnson was an extraordinary guitar player with an extraordinary charisma, very weird charisma. Um, and Lee Brillo was uh, a, a really good rumbunctious frontman. And they had a terrific career in London in the United Kingdom. Um, if you went to somebody and mentioned their name here in the United States, no one would know. Um, which, when you come across a band like that, that has such a strong appeal in the United Kingdom, and nobody knows them in the U.S., you, you kind of scratch your head and go, well, what happened there? Yeah, and you know, I even have an, a, a different perspective on all that because you, you can sort of say, well, there's there's an ocean between the two shores and I can sort of get it. But you look like a band, for example, out of out of Switzerland, Gothard. They have 16 or, or 17 platinum albums in Switzerland. Here, nobody knows who they are or very, very little. But taking away the ocean, you look at a lot of the Canadian bands. Gowan, Honeymoon Suite. Helix, Killer Dwarves, they they tour this country up and down and up and down. And, and as we're talking, the Killer Dwarves are actually setting up for shows in Atlantic Canada tonight. And you go down to, you know, Connecticut and you say, hey, Honeymoon Suite. And people go, yeah, 
there's there's a holiday in down the road if you want the honeymoon suite go ahead <laughs> and it's bizarre because uh, you you would think that okay over an ocean even back in the day with with radio and all that it, it was still a physical separation but from canada you know toronto radio was spinning music that was being heard in the uh, in detroit and in buffalo and stuff and montreal was you know playing stuff into vermont and yet there's this. Why do you think that is? Is it just bad management? Is it just uh, sort of geo or sandboxing bands w- within a fir- certain market and, and record companies going, yeah, we're just not going to invest the money to to bring them to New York. What what what's sort of the the issue? Uh, I think you'd have to look at each situation as an individual case, because to me it's an absolute mystery why. For example, say Priest didn't bring status quo over as an opener. Um, And maybe you'd look at that and go, well, the boys in quo are doing fine where they are, and they just don't feel like doing the American slog. Because I always thought that um, in in, in a weird way, they were kind of like an English ACDC in that they, you know, very guitar driven, very groove driven and uh, very identifiable um, in an obvious way. But, you know, they had some cracking tracks that it it always mystified me that nobody made an effort to get them on the radio over here. Now, with Dr. Feelgood, that might have been just a little bit too English. Um, And with, I mean, again, another of my all-time favorite bands, the sensational Alex Harvey Band, who were kind of, vaudevillian in a way um, with a with a Scott leading them so you know maybe it was just too English too British um, but you know anybody who likes to discover something new even if it's old go dig out a track called The Faith Healer by the sensational Alex Harvey Band you will be delighted. Yeah, and uh, I'll just say this. When I interviewed Francis Rossi, a status quo, about uh, probably about four years ago now, that was one of my most listened to episodes. And, and I had pretty much just put Francis on with nobody else, and people just flocked to it. I, I was surprised. I mean, over a weekend, it had had 10,000 streams, and I was like, wow, Really? Uh, so it goes to show. Anyway, I'm hoping the same here with the Wild Hearts because they do have this longevity. They have been around since 89, so they are celebrating 30 years together. New album is Renaissance Man. And one thing that uh, Ginger has been very vocal of or vocal about on uh, Twitter and social media and us is uh, raising awareness for mental uh, health. And he feels that, uh, well, I'm, in fact, I won't speak for him, but I get the sense that he feels that uh, the system has let him down over the years, and I think he thinks that – again, I think he thinks so – that it has let others down. What What is sort of your take on, on mental illness? Do, do we have it under control, or is it an, an epidemic? Uh, I, I, I see two sides to a coin. Um, I don't think that here in America we have much of a safety net for people who are in genuine isolation, alienation, and difficulty. Um, 
on the other hand, I think that there is a new form of mental disorder invented every week so as Big Pharma can sell you a goddamn pill for it that won't do anything but just numb you. It doesn't cure anything. Pills don't cure anything. They merely numb you. They don't go to the source of the problems. Um, so on the other hand, um, people would call the English eccentric occasionally. Now I think there's a new pill for every form of eccentricity. Um, and the other thing I think too is that it's uh, uh, just another means of population control and keeping us all in place and making sure that we're home watching the sport instead of thinking about the politics of the moment or what's going on. Um, I, I think there's definitely um, a negative flip side to it. And I, you know, and as I said, I think on, on the other hand, um, there's a pitiful lack of care for those who really do need help and, and need to reach out. But there again, we're talking America where health and good food is only for the rich. Go into your supermarket and just see the crap that's on there and see how much sugar is placed in every single item so as we're addicted to it. Um, what is it? No. Corn syrup, right? Uh, high, high fructose uh, corn syrup and everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I usually will, will, will give all kinds of accolades to the Canadian system. But when it comes to mental health, you're on your own. They will pay for, in my case, heart surgery and kidney surgery and this and that. Uh, and by the way, I'm lucky to not be on any pills uh, as I get older, which is, you know, let's hope that stays. But uh, if you have mental health and you need to go talk to somebody, you, you know, you're going through a bad divorce or you're depressed, you need to come up with a whole bunch of cash. And there, you know, those doctors are 100, 150, 200, 300, depending on, you know, the good ones. for the. And I think that's a hole in our public system. If you're going to pay for the, 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 you know, the cure cancer and to fix a heart and mental illness is the one that is ubiquitous and is the one that leads to a lot of the other stuff, you know, through the stress. And and yet our system goes, mm, yeah, well, on that, you're on your own, which I think is... It's antisocial. Well, it's, reg it's uh, regrettable. And I don't know how it is in the UK. I don't know if it's the same thing as in Canada where they'll pay for the, you know, the foot surgery and the broken knee. And and I don't know if they pay for that. I, I, I didn't ask Ginger if they did. Do you know, by the way, does... does um, what do you call it in the the UK the, their 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 medical system and uh, the um, the NHS uh, right the National Health Service does it pay yeah. for for everything like yeah. dentistry and mental health or is it like us where it's like pick and pick and it, choose it, it, you you can't get your teeth done on the NHS but I think they have a far better um, intent to have some sort of infrastructure to help people through bad times. And, you know, that's, that's the heart of being social. Um, you know, look after each other. Love your brother as you would like to be loved. Um, you know, we're so far away from that in this world at the moment. It's just really dis discouraging. It, it is. Now, uh, let us get over to uh, Ginger. Of course, uh, he does talk about the new album, Renaissance Men, uh, out May 3rd, to be precise. But uh, we also get into the mental health issues and some other stuff, and it's, it's a great chat. I love him. I think I think he's great, and their music is exceptionally fantastic. And here, 
Uh, I'm going to tell folks uh, who may not be aware, because people sometimes will write me on Twitter and say, okay, well, I heard you mention this. Now, where do I start? First album, Earth versus the Wild Hearts. Check it off. P-H-U-K, U-Q. I don't know why I can't say. Uh, from 1995. Check it off. There's also a deluxe edition that came out. So just check that one off. And then I would go to The Wild Hearts Must Be Destroyed, which is a little bit more sort of American hard rock. And British fans completely hate it. Canadian fans like me, we love it because it, it I don't want to say it sounds like Def Leppard, because it, uh, that's, but, but it's more hard rock singles oriented. And I'm sure if Ginger listens to this, he's going to say, shut up. That's not what it was. But uh, that's where I would go from 2003. Uh, and of course, uh, I love the song Vanilla Radio. So go check that out. But uh, here he is without a further ado, le seul et unique Ginger from the Wild Hearts. We are speaking with Ginger Wildheart. Of course, the new album is Renaissance Men due out in May. And, uh, you know, uh, Ginger, absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Our last interview goes back to, I think, 2003, 2004 for the album Must Be Destroyed, which, by the way, coming home from Kiss last night, we listened to in full in the car. You cannot go wrong with Vanilla Radio and um, what's that? Uh, one Love, One Life, One Girl. Holy Christ. <laughs> Great stuff. But a pleasure to, uh, to uh, once again talk to you. Thank you very much, man. It's an absolute pleasure to be uh, talked to. Yes. Um, and that, that's funny because it's a contentious album, that one, because people in the UK tend to universally hate that album, whereas people in the States, usually uh, that's their favorite one. So, you know, arms across the water and all that. We are, we are two nations divided by a language after all. But, uh, hey, I like them all. They're all like kids. Some of them are prettier than others, but I like them all. Yeah, you know, listen, for, for me, uh, it, it was my first introduction to the band because, you know, North America and especially MTV and Much Music in Canada, they weren't playing the the, the previous stuff or the, the back catalog. And so this one got some attention and, and it does have a little bit of a North American rock swagger to it. But, hey, I'm all down for that. But, you know, now, listen, I was brought up with... Uh... With, with American music, you know. I mean, Kiss were my first love. Um, and then Ramones, um, which I know is not... Uh, not uh, but it's, uh, yeah, but Ramones, Cheap Trick, Stars, Angel, Kicks. I, I love American music. And it's, it's absolutely pointless um, even trying to deny it at this point. There's so many references and, you know, tips of the hat to those bands. Um, I'm a I'm a fan. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I, I still am. But, uh, you know, but, uh, my my love of music didn't wane at all in the many many years that I've been alive. So it, it, yeah, it shows up in my songs. Of course it does. I don't I, I don't I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I, I like I like the shape of a wheel. You really do. So okay, let me let, let, since we're just on this uh, before we get to the new album. Uh, we also listened to the, the you know greatest hits coming back from the Kiss show last night, and you do hear those influences. You you can sort of pick out. You go, oh, that's a sort of a uh, Rick Nielsen kind of a thing. Um, just talk to me a little bit about your love for Kiss, and then we'll we'll move on to talking about the Wild Hearts because you have done Hard Luck Woman. It is a a great version that you do. Um, just talk to me about about discovering American music and Cheap Trick, because I remember very specifically in 2003 when we did the interview, we did a whole segment on your love of Cheap Trick and He's a Whore, and, and, and in fact, that's one of the songs we listened to last night. 
Uh, well, um, like most people in my country, we didn't see Kiss on the TV. We didn't get to see them live. Um, it was ages until they even came over. And when they came over, they came to London, and nowhere near me. I'm on the opposite side of the country. I'm right at the top. Um, so I, I never got to see them even move. So my introduction to Kiss was was pictures. And, you know, as a, as a little kid, I wasn't really into Spider-Man and Superman, um, but these guys had, had guitars and fire. Uh, you know, as of a, as a whatever I was, nine, eight, um, that was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm up for that. And I remember saving up all my money um, buying Kiss Alive 2 purely for the, the strength of the inside of that gateboard, that ridiculous picture with all the fire and the rising drum kit. We didn't have anything like that in England. And I was just like, these guys have got to suck for me not to love them. And, you know, I put it on Detroit Rock City. I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. There's nothing here, nothing here I don't like. Um, and uh, it wasn't until, you know, they, they, they kind of were milking it and milking it and milking it. And I, even as a kid, I was, I was kind of getting a little bit tired of them. And then, um, and then, and then they got on the charts. And, the, you know, the DJ, I was in the car with my mom and dad, and the DJ said, uh, we have Kiss coming up. And I'm like, Mom, Dad, stop the car, stop the car. We've we got to listen to Kiss. You're going to love them. And, uh, and, the, and, and this, we stopped the car. And they played I Was Made For Loving You. <laughs> My parents loved it. I hated it. And then, I, you know, and then Ramones, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. like most actually, I've got to from Kiss to Ramones and then to Punk. Yeah, and that's a great gravitation and a great uh, sort of arc there. And, of course, if they do come to Europe, you're going to have to see them. But let, let's talk uh, Renaissance Men. The, the first single, of course, Dislocated. Is I don't so- think I I don't think I will get to see them because Gene Simmons doesn't like me very much. Uh, he's, he's, uh, funny enough, I mean, I've only met him a couple of times. Once was very pleasant, once wasn't very pleasant, but he's brought my name up a few times in interviews, like, you know, in, in, in not very favorable um, circumstances as well. So I, I don't think I'm probably allowed to see Kiss, which is a shame, really, because I've got a 10-year-old boy I'd love to go to see a kiss show with, but um, no, I don't. I don't. I'll be, I'll be getting any VIP passes for that. But yeah, what were you saying about uh, the new, the new song? The new, the song, new song, dislocated. Which again, dislocated. driving home from from Kiss last night, we we blasted uh, dislocated. We were streaming it on on um, Spotify. <sighs> what a song! But but more than just musically, it, it talks about a very important issue: mental mental health issues, which. Um, you have been very public about your own struggles with it, and you've been very vocal about the services available, and also if telling people, listen, if you're not feeling right, you've got to make a call, you've got to reach out. So talk to me about the the importance of addressing mental issues and, and sort of removing the stigma, because if you say to somebody, hey, you know, last night I went to see a psychologist, they go, oh, oh, you did? What's, what's wrong with you? And, and we got to stop that, right? So, so just talk to me about the, the, the wider issue. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a difficult one because for a lot of cases uh, like mine, um, there is no treatment. There seems to be no treatment because, uh, you know, the medical profession is pretty ignorant about it, um, you know, as in a lack of education. There's a few out-of-date textbooks um, that they can go and refer to. But um, as far as, like, you know, this thing being a killer, and in our country alone, it kills, you know, roughly between five and a half and 6,000 people a year. 
Um, and if there's no treatment, you can't rely on a system. So what I try and tell people is reach out to people, find some survival skills and survival methods. Uh, so if you are let down by the system, you're not let down completely. You've got something to rely on. Uh, because what the medical profession, especially the mental health side of the medical profession, is they give you a lot of hope initially, and then you get thrown around the system. Um, and they, and they, they basically... Um, gradually take away your hope. That's the only thing you've got left to keep afloat with. Now, when you're left with, with, with a mental illness that wants you dead and your hope's just been erased, then you've got to reach out. You've got to talk to people. It's so, so important that you reach out. And then you find out that, you know, the treatment is basically we are a community. We're not alone. It's so stigmatized, this illness. Um, because it's got no physical manifestation, you don't come out in huge boils or anything. Um, you just, you know, suffer in silence. And people go, well, I don't know if, you, if you're making it up or if you really, it really is something until they kill themselves. And then they go, oh, yeah, that guy really was struggling. Um, and you just look at the people that are dying in front of us. Every year we're losing well-loved celebrities. This is an illness that doesn't care if you're rich or poor, black or white, male or female. It wants you dead. And unless you get some kind of support system and, and, and you know, methods of, of, of coping by yourself, when you realize that the system is broke, um, then you're, you're in the hands of this thing um, or the jaws of this thing. Uh, so I just, I just try and always promote, you know, talk to people who suffer from this. The most important thing is, A, that you know you're not alone, and B, you've got somewhere to go when it comes to when it comes to the crunch, um, and you know a lot of the time it's just make it through the day and, and get to bed and then get to the next morning, and if you just keep doing that every single day, then you're you're doing as well as anyone else. Is it important for bands like the Wild Hearts to do songs like Dislocated that address the issue? I mean, should should we be you know, those in the media and those in the public eye making it more of an issue and making it more aware? Absolutely. There's that, you know, people are obsessed with celebrity. I'm not saying that I'm a celebrity or anything like that, but people are obsessed with celebrity. We, 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 we're, we're a generation that listens to celebrity if they, if they tell you to, you know, feed the, the homeless or, you know, gay rights or anything. But there's hardly any celebrities are talking about this. Well, not enough. Um, and this is something that affects everyone, not just people that suffer, but pe the people around people that suffer. And I've seen how my illness um, affects people around me. It makes life hard for them. Um, the more celebrities, the more, the, the, you know, the, the more people are going to listen. And, and even if it still remains a mysterious illness, at least it's legit. And, uh, and, and you know, people believe that someone who's suffering is actually suffering. Because, I mean, it's all internal. There's no, there's no way of telling. But, um, you know, I think if, if more people invested their time and talked about this, then uh, the stigma would be removed and people would actually, you know, think of it as a, as a, as a legitimate illness. And it's not just an illness. This thing kills people, you know. This thing kills, I don't know how many people it kills in America, but it's got to be more than, North America's a bit bigger than Britain. Yeah, and, 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 and it's just, it's just, it's just, it gets... How can I put this? It's, um, you know, when you have a, a, a wart or a boil or, 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 you know, measles, they can give you a pill and they can, they can focus on, on what to, to, to shoot and kill and, and cut out. But 
with a mental disease that you don't know. And you do have physical manifestations. You do throw up. You do not go out. You do. It, it, it's you can't the target about, anything. The, the thing about um, internalizing it, when you know when people don't open up and they go inside themselves, and that's what it wants. It, it, you know, this this illness wants you to 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 retreat inside yourself. Um, and that you know that, that that by the very nature is like you know people are being. Persecuted by themselves. I mean, I'd, I'd fight anyone in the world apart from me. You know, I mean, every day fighting the same adversary. You know, you've been you've been asleep, and this thing's been in the corner doing push-ups all night. You know, this thing's stronger than you a lot of the time. Then sometimes you're stronger, and it's an equal fight. But you're seeing by the statistics that you know it's, it's, this thing wins a lot of rounds, and it, it's uh, you, you, people need to open up. You know, they there's nothing so- more important. So let me ask you this then, because as a musician, how, how much of, of the music in a sense is, and maybe the word is exaggerated, but how much of it of making music, playing music, being on stage is sort of your salvation to sort of get away from that and, and just for those few moments and, and those, those, those new albums and the, the new tours, just be, hey man, I, I'm going to go out here and celebrate this stuff and these fans are going to cheer for me and, and it's just going to be sort of my escape from this, this thing. Well, you know, I, I I hope to live to an old age where I can look back on my life and, and feel like I was charmed, that I was lucky to have this, because uh, music, being blessed with, with, with the gift of writing music, um, has proven not only to be my, my, my comforter, I'm a friend, I'm a therapist, I'm a medication, um, but also a great means of communication. And if I'm writing a song about some, some struggles that I'm having, and it goes directly to someone else, and they're affected by it, or, or comforted by it, or in some cases, well, I, I, you know, I don't want to go too much into it, like it, you know, it being like some kind of medicinal property, but but it kind of is. People tell me that they got through things because of music, my music or other people's music. Music is an amazing means of communication, and it's it's not really a secret. I mean, music is the sound of emotions, and everyone exists with on different vibrations and and whatnot. So, you know, if, I, if I'm writing a song and it's helping me through the day and then it comes out and it helps someone else, man, that's, that's, I should be happy about that. I mean, happy for the wrong word, but I should be grateful. Um, and I hope to get to the point where, you know, this, I, I get an angle on this and I can live with it and it doesn't take me out and I can look back on my life with, with gratitude. I mean, and and music is therapeutic. And I'm I'm, I'm just going to talk for myself. Last night, again, driving home from uh, from Ottawa to Montreal after the Kiss show, we're falling asleep, and we put on Caffeine Bomb, and that just kicked <laughs> that that kicked us to the next level. We were like, we got this two hour drive. We're good to go. Um, but let's get back to Renaissance Men here. It, it is, um trumpeted i guess for the lack of a better word as the classic lineup of ginger cj richie danny talk to me about working as that as that sort of fearsome force and because there's a chemistry there that you just cannot deny yes you've had other parts moving in and out and the band the music's been great but there's a specific chemistry with these four guys right um they they always was uh you know we i don't think we've ever had a bad lineup but with the, you know, when we first started, uh, there was us four. Um, we bonded on the music that we loved. We all loved the same thrash bands. We all loved the same punk bands. We all loved the same pop music. We loved the same hard rock. Um, so we, 
kind of know when we when we've got it right. If you know what I mean, uh, you know, we would, and we wouldn't tackle anything that we can't play. So you won't hear us do reggae or blues or anything. But uh, you know, thrash, hardcore, punk riffs with you know mel- melodies. We're all about that, and we kind of know when we've done a good job or when when something's just out of our league. Um, so there's a communication between all of us, and it and, and it, it really it's, it's down to the when we were going before. We, we used to be a, a, a am I allowed to swear at all? Absolutely, <laughs> swear all you want. We we used to be a bunch of cunts when we were younger. You know, we didn't really care about each other. We didn't really care that much about other people. Um, we were kind of self-serving, um, drug-taking, heavy-drinking morons, really, um, but uh, who like to have a good time. And now we've got through a lot, and I personally look at the rest of the band and be like, how, did, how are we all still here? None of us died. We all overdosed, and we all ended up in hospitals and stuff. One of us lost a leg, and we're all still here. We're all still doing it. And the, and the difference between then and now is there's an added gratitude now which never, never was was there before in the 90s. Um, so I, I look around at this band and I just see a bunch of survivors. I see a bunch of people that, that, that love this now. I don't think we loved it before. I, you know, not, not, not really deeply appreciated it. Um, um, and the that, you know, that's, it's the chemistry born on the fact that we've known each other for so long. We've been through so much together. We've fallen out. We've got back together. Um, um, you know, without without, you know, putting too fine a point in it, we probably probably technically love each other now. Let, let me take up on that because you say uh, there's a love and and this and that, and you didn't appreciate it in the past. Was that because maybe some of the pressure, you know, record companies come to you and say you have to have a single, you have to be on tour, you have to do this, you got to get back, and and now it's more of listen, we're doing this for the love of the music. And if I want to put out three albums this year and none for the next 10 years, I can. Um, yeah, yeah, well, we had a lot of, you know, our, our life in this band has been, you know, peppered by disappointments. When our first album came out in, 80, in 94, um, I flew over to New York to speak to our A&R man to ask why he wouldn't release our album in North America. And he said, it's too punk. And I said, but what if, what if punk's going to be big in America? And he went, Ginger, punk will mm-hmm. never be big in America. And then, you know, one year later in 95, you had Green Day, Offspring, Rancid, Epitaph. You know, it blew up bigger than punk ever did. We missed that boat. And, that, and so once we were reeling from disappointment with that, we thought, well, we'll just go back home, we'll lick our wounds, We'll just be an album band because all the bands I ever loved were album bands. Um, we just make great albums and create a great legacy. And then our record company wanted us to be a singles band because Oasis broke big. So it was kind of like, you know, we kept missing the boat by, you know, half an hour. And there was so, you know, we were so kind of disappointed, disillusioned um, that we didn't, we didn't really appreciate the music as much as we do now. And now I, I really could not give a shit um, about things like, you know, trying to groom the band for success or anything. To me, it's all about, you know, this is a great album. First and foremost, are we happy with it? Um, and then, you know, do we think the fans are going to like it? Um, and then, wow, well, this has got to sound great live. You know, those old values that you used to have before you got a deal, when you were just 
making music with your mates and doing local gigs. And, and we found that we've got that attitude back, you know. And it's, um, I suggest that, you know, in the absence of success, I think all bands should go back to the reasons why they did it. I mean, maybe if you, if you have tons of success, maybe, maybe you have to follow a formula. Um, but I mean, my God, you know what I mean? If we'd had success on, say, a cover version or a ballad, that'd be awful. Or a song that we hated. I mean, look at Janie Lane. Is Janie Lane the, the guy from Warrant? Yeah, the, the cherry pie guy. He goes, oh, I'm now the yeah. cherry pie guy. He basically killed himself because of cherry pie. He couldn't get he couldn't get taken seriously as a songwriter because of that one huge song, you know. And you got I know bands that have had a hit with a ballad, and that you know they they expected to do a ballad on every album. And this kind of you know when you get some success, it seems like you get shoved into a, a shape or a or a formula that that you've got to repeat. Well, you become cookie cutter. All your songs have to fit the same cookie mold. Well, okay, let me take up on this, though, the whole North American thing, because there are some bands, Status Quo, Thunder, etc., Wild Hearts, huge in the UK, can tour in the UK, can do all this stuff, but coming over here is difficult. And when you ask fans, you know, I put on the internet, on this day, you know, F-U-H-K, U-K, U-Q, sorry, Fuck was released, people are like, oh, it's one of the greatest albums ever done. And yet, for a lot of North American fans, they're like, "What are you talking about? Um, where, where did it go wrong in terms of conquering North America?" And I, and I don't mean to put that in the negative light, but why is it that Status Quo and Thunder and the Wild Hearts can be, you know, cultural treasures in the UK, and then you come to North America and people go, "Who?" And it's it's awful because the the band and that album particularly, it's a masterpiece. Uh, the, it promotion really. I mean, it's all down to your label. I mean, if you you know someone's got to pay for you to go over there and pay for hotels for you to stay in. Um, we didn't have that. We had a management that didn't think America was important enough for us to go over and play. Um, with a label that didn't want to release our records. Um, and the frustrating thing mainly was um, the reviews. The reviews were all amazing. I, I don't remember ever seeing a bad review for our our first two albums uh, in, in, in any American magazine. And we were in some big magazines and some small fanzines and stuff. Everyone seemed to really like what we were doing. There's been an awful lot of cases of success stories that got terrible reviews. Um, and it's still kind of, you know, the public decided that it was going to be okay. I just figured that we could be one of those bands that were doing something with a punk rock template, adding kind of, you know, thrash riffs and, and, you know, cheap trick melodies or whatever. Um, and, you know, people would have, you know, I'm sure that American fans, American listeners would have said, I like what they're doing with that, that template. Um, but unless you're going to get some backing, unless you're going to get some some money in to tour, then it ain't going to happen. And then you've got bands like Slade, who were huge in England, and then went over and spent a shitload of time in America to, to break North America, uh, and then by the time we came back, everyone had moved on. So, you know, it's, it swings and roundabouts. But, you know, when, when, when the accusation comes of being underachievers, I'm always reminded of my favourite groups who were all underachievers. Jason and the Scorchers, Kicks, Longriders, Lone Justice, Fishbone. I mean, God, how did Fishbone not get famous and Red Hot Chili Peppers did? How the, how the fuck does that happen? You know? 
so I mean, I mean, we're in good company. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of my favorite bands that that didn't do as well as people think they should have done. Um, and it's all down to promotion. It's all down to the labels, the machine working for them. And I guess our machine didn't work for us because we were kind of volatile and, you know, we weren't a safe bet. We were probably going to end up getting in trouble. And if we'd been really successful, chances are me or Danny would have been, would be dead, you know, because Possibly. we used to run out of drugs when we ran out of money. It wasn't like Motley Crue when there was a, you know, an, an endless amount. I don't know how those guys survived. Money coming in and drug addictions, I don't get that. We would have definitely killed ourselves. Um, so, yeah, we, we've got to thank the, um, the, laws of, uh, the laws of justice for, <laughs> for not ODing fatally. And, 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 I, and I certainly didn't want to uh, intonate that you're underachievers because, uh, I mean, it's been 25 years, right? <laughs> uh, no, it's been 30 years. 30 that's years, that's right. 25 years since uh, Fishing for Luckies, though. But, but yeah, 30 years. Yeah, CG's just got a tattoo with a 30-year anniversary tattoo that I'm going to get. And uh, 30 years, 89, we, apparently we started, 89. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so a 30-year career for an underachiever, I mean, that's not an underachiever. I mean, that's, that's something to be very proud of, I have to say. Oh, I, I, to me, success is defined by, do you have a boss? You know, do you get to choose your hours that you get out of bed? You know, I mean, can you can you pay the bills? Have you got a roof over your head? You know, do your bands still, you know, pull a, pull a crowd? Do you do you still have people coming along and you know telling you that they've followed you for the since your first album? I mean, where I come from, I come from a place called South Shields. It's a tiny little pissant place on the north coast of uh, of England, um, and I'm. I'm one of the most well-known, I'm one of the most famous people from South Shields. Wikipedia have famous people from South Shields and I'm in the list. I mean, what I've done with my life compared to people that I know is, uh, is, is massive. Yeah, we didn't do a Guns N' Roses or a Nirvana um, and not many bands do. But I mean, we do get labelled with this kind of underachiever thing. I think it's just because people are disappointed that more people didn't get into the band because, you know, pe- people do tend to love this group. They and do. I, I, get, I get it now because the last album, I, you know, I, I became a kind of fan of my own band just by seeing, you know, the guys and what they've got up, what they've got through in their lives, and and, and the, the problems that they've surmounted, and 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 how we still get together and make this sound. Um, and I kind of, yeah, I saw it. I got I got why people like the Wild Heart. So I get it, you know. Yep. Uh, and and anytime I play the Wild Hearts for somebody who's never heard them before, they go, "Oh my God, that's amazing! Who is this band?" And and yeah. Anyway, let me let me let me move on here to to the future. Of course, Hutzpah came out uh, ten years ago. We've got the new album now. Where do we go, sort of moving forward? Is it? Listen, folks, enjoy Renaissance Men, and we'll see you later. Or it's like, okay, we're back on this horse. Give us another 18 months or 24 months. We will have another album for you. We will have some more tours for you. Where do you see yourself moving forward uh, in terms of the band, let's say, over the next five or six or seven years? Man, I, I, when, when, where I come from, when I grew up, bands used to release an album and tour the album every year. And it was a cycle. Bands in Motorhead would do that every year. Um, and that's what I want to do with this band. I want to do an album every year. Um, I, I, you know, 
Speaking of Motorhead, I realised that there's a big hole in the world now that Lemmy's not there. Um, there's no more Motorhead. There's no more status quo, really. Uh, there's no more Slayer. Um, there's a big hole there with, with, the, with the kind of fans that were rabid. We're not talking about like floating fans or Fairweather fans. We're talking about fans that got tattoos of the band. Fans that, you know... They, they, Lifers. About the... Lifers, yeah. Um, and they and we attract that kind of people. You know, we you go any country, you go to any bar, wear a Wild Arts t-shirt, and chances are someone will come up and talk to you. It's, it, it's an icebreaker, just the same as Motorhead used to be when I was a kid. So, yeah, I want to keep this going until, well, as long as Lenny did, you know? I just want to carry on the mantle of Motorhead, um, do an album and tour a year. Besides that we are, that would be easy. If we start getting a bit more popular, might be a year and a half cycle, but um, for now, it's our, our, our success is very modest, so we could easily do that. Yeah, uh, and let me talk about being prolific. You you have put out numerous solo albums. You've done a whole bunch of side projects: Super Shit Six Six Six, Clam Abuse, Silver Ginger Five, uh, Flirtation with Brides of Destruction. Do you do you focus now on the Wild Hearts going forward, or are you still going to have side bands, side projects, ginger solo albums, does the creativity sort of get funneled into one thing or does the creativity sort of just keep going and it'll be what it'll be and folks just get ready because i got a lot of songs coming. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mad music fan. I, I love so many different types of music um, and, uh, and it would, it would just be confuse people if I tried to fit all those different types of music in the wild arts. So I think it's probably healthy for the band that I do these other albums and experiment with things, whether it's country and folk or or grindcore, industrial noise, or just, you know, lighter pop rock or whatever. Um, I, I love all of that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not going to pick one and stick with that. Uh, but the Wild Arts get together. We know what we do well. Uh, we know what we play well. And we know what goes down great live. Um, and that means I can just concentrate on that when I'm with the band. Yeah, and that's good. And and just quickly, uh, before we wrap up here, just talk to me a little bit about Black Leather Mojo from 2000, because to me, that was sort of like one of the top three, you know, top five albums of that year. It is absolutely perfect from, from start to finish. It is a fun time. It is a good time. The songs are great. Uh, Sonic Shake, about just talk to me about that project and that period of time for you. Oh God, that was a funny one. I was, uh, I, I, that album came about on a drunken night in Japan where I told, <laughs> I told the Ian Armand from Mercury Records that I could play all the instruments. And I, I, I dabbled, but I've never recorded drums or anything. He said, great, I'm going to get you in the studio tomorrow and you're going to do three songs. So I had to run back to the hotel, write three songs you know, practice playing drums on my legs because I was going to be playing on a huge pearl drum kit in the studio the next day. Um, and the whole thing turned out really well. Uh, so I got signed and I'm like, oh crap, now I've got to go and form a band. And I'm a crackhead. Um, so I, I quit the drugs. I went to LA and I was going to, um, I was going to get uh, Nick Menza to play drums and Robert Trujillo. Is that how you pronounce it? The Metallica guy? Trujillo, Hello? Robert Trujillo. So you got so you got Nick from Megadeth. You've got Trujillo from. Was he a, was, was he in? Uh, 
Was he in Metallica by then? No, no, he was in Suicidal Tendencies. Right. And, and that was going to be the album. Now, it is various, you know, budgetary reasons we couldn't make it work. So I went back home, um, did it in England. And the whole thing was just kind of like, it was meant to be a solo album. And, and halfway through making it, I just thought, it sounds like a band. So I give it a band name, put a band around it. And everyone assumed that the live band was the one that was playing on the album. It was, it was, a, it was some guys that I know, but didn't end up in the actual live group. But it was just one of those things where I, I wanted to hear, a, you know, a bombastic, an album full of dream polices, really. And uh, so I wrote one. And uh, and I, I liked that album. I thought it was really good. But I mean, speaking of timing, you couldn't have picked a worse timing. It was just when dance music was taken over and everyone was in a Fat Boy Slim and Chemical Brothers. And so was I. But, uh, you know, I didn't want to make an a, 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 a electronic dance music album. So I made a, a glam rock album instead. And, you know, typically everyone just went, who cares? And now it's, it's, it's one of those albums that's fondly remembered. I think... I think history will be kind to me. You know, I think, I think I'm, I'm creating a musical legacy with all this ridiculous, stupid stuff that I do. Uh, I think, you know, 10, 20 years after my demise, uh, I'm sure that you know, people will go back and listen to them and go, oh, this guy actually knew his way around the tune. You should probably give him a, a bit of a break. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's all there. It's, it's, as Keith Richards said, it's the cost of an education. That's right. And, and of course, you've got Connie Bloom on it, and I'll, and I'll be interviewing Connie next week. Uh, he's, he's another. Connie, was, Connie wasn't on the album. That was me. Oh, that was you? Okay, because in the credits, it's always been listed as Connie. So, but, he, but he toured with you, though. Oh, Connie did all the shows, yeah. I did, I, did, I did no Silver Ginger Fire shows without Connie. Right. I mean, the, first, the first time we went, we, we, our first show, we had a drummer that had got involved, and he was a great drummer from a grindcore band, um, and when we got into rehearsals, we had about a week to rehearse before we um, went over to Japan for our first shows. And he couldn't play slow because he couldn't play like in, in a groove. So we had no drummer. And we were leaving, I think, three days later. So Connie had to get the drummer from the Electric Boys to, to learn, fly over, learn the album on the plane. <laughs> and then get into rehearsal. We had 24 hours to rehearse. And then we were flying to Japan. And so the first show that we had, we, we didn't know what we were doing. We barely knew the songs. And uh, I, I'm sure it was a, a cross between Jet Lag and, uh, and, and the Japanese fans that it actually turned out really well. And I went back to listen to that first bootleg, and there was a charm there. So, I mean, me and Connie definitely had a great thing live. And he's a, he's a fantastic guitar player and a, a lovely fellow. He, he is absolutely... Uh spectacular just he's got a great ear for music great talent and he's just an incredibly nice guy and and i'll finish with this just uh in the nice guy stuff because uh, you have done a lot of collaborations with uh ricky warwick uh black star riders the almighty uh and uh just talk to me a little bit about ricky and working with him and, and will we ever get a full-blown ricky ginger something acoustic album or full-out collaboration because <laughs> I vote yes. <laughs> I, 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 I pretty much guarantee that we're not. Neither of our schedules are going to allow that to happen. I mean, like he's the only guy that's probably busier than me, and that guy doesn't even. The only guy, time that guy stops is to sleep. Um, so yeah, that, I can't imagine so. Uh, yeah, 
obviously you never say never, but I, I can't really imagine. So we've never mentioned it. We, the amount of times that we went out drinking and we we never mentioned talk, working with each other. So I think, you know, some friendships are just stay friendships. You know, me and Devin Townsend are the same, you know, uh, I used to I used to suggest that we should do an album together and Devin would be like, nope, I don't want to do it. And now, and now I get it, you know. Sometimes friendship is uh, is the strongest bond. Um, so, you know, I, I, I value and, and savor the friendships that I have. I don't want to jeopardize them by making music together, some of them. Because <laughs> once you get into the business world, and actually I was going to ask you that because uh, Devin is Canadian and he is playing here at Heavy Montreal in uh, July. Um well, obviously you're not going to do a collaboration with him, but just how do you sort of get to meet Devin? He's sort of one of our, you know, national treasures up here. He he's an incredible talent. Uh, we we got put on the most bizarre bill I've ever heard. It was the Wild Art and Steve Vai. Um, yeah, exactly. And but um, Devin was singing, and he was singing for contractual reasons because he wanted to put his solo album out, and it was on the same label as Steve Vai. So he he was he agreed to sing with Steve Vai um, at, on the provision that he would get his solo album out. Um, and I think the only person that had his rotten the time on that tour was uh, the nurse was Devin. So he used to hang around in our dressing room, hang around on our bus. And then when um, we got back home and decided that we should we should sack CJ, which the most ridiculous idea I think I've ever had in a long, long list of stupid ideas. Um, we had no guitar player, so we got in touch with Devin to do some shows and some touring with suicidal tendencies and festivals. And he jo- he joined, and he was great. He, he was amazing. I don't know, is that beeping me or you? That That's beeping you, but uh, I, I guess you have another interview, yeah. another call, but let me quickly remind oh. folks, pick up Renaissance Men. It's coming out in May, and if you don't know the band... First of all, shame on you. But second of all, start off with Earth versus the Wild Hearts or the P-H-U-Q album, Fuck for, for short. Uh, you won't be disappointed, no, folks. Start off with Renaissance Man. Start off with Renaissance. Well, that's what I said. Start off with Renaissance Man and then go back and, and, and get those ones. But uh, Ginger, always, always a pleasure. And uh, we, we certainly have to do this more than, you know, every 15 years because uh, great talent, great songs. And, and this was an incredibly great chat. So thank you, sir. Uh, you're a good man. Thank you. And uh, we'll uh, we'll see you online. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye now. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Ginger of the Wild Hearts, of course, Renaissance Men out in May. But let us move over to Gino Vanelli, which is interesting for me because folks are. Folks who who don't know these two artists are, are getting a, an education today. Gino has been around since the early uh, 70s, even 60s, I guess. First album, Crazy Life, 1973. And he has an interesting story. And I'll ask you about this because he was discovered by Herb Alpert from A&M Records. And the story is, and I'm just going to sort of gloss it over, but he was hanging around the parking lot. Herb comes out. He runs up to Herb and says, oh, plays. Let me be on your label and, and so on and so forth. Herb said, okay, I'll give you a shot, kid. And I think he was like 17 at the time. Ended up with a record deal. And then every year after that, 73, 74, 75, etc., all the way down to the 80s, album every year, either platinum or gold. 
Um, that's an amazing story. I mean, you're in the business. You were in the business. You, you or you're in the business, I should say. You dealt with Great White. You dealt with Guns and Roses. I mean, if if Axel Rose had let's let's Clarence Clemens. Let's mention Clarence Clemens. Let's not forget the Angels out of Australia or Havana Black from Finland. You know, there were a couple of other things that we played around with. Right. But so but, you know, let, let me put it this way. If if you were on Sunset Strip in 1982 and Axel Rose had come running at you and said, hey, give me a shot. I mean, would your reaction have been sure, young mate? Come on in. No, you probably would have just punched him in the head and said, get, get away from me. You crazy. Right. I mean, it's. That it's an amazing story how he got sort of discovered. Well, you kind of wonder if Gino was a really good football player, because if he managed to get up into uh, uh, Herb Alpert's face, um, I would think that he would have had to have dodged at least one security guard. So you know, maybe he's probably good at a sidestep. Um, but it's very extraordinary that you know somebody will come up to you and and say give me a shot and you get a positive response because you're living in LA. Most of the nutters in the world are in LA. And the last thing that you want to feel comfortable about is someone coming up and getting in your face. Um, that is, that is not an environment where that is a comfortable thing. Um, though, so though 1972, 73 was a little different. It's not like 2019 where you're probably thinking, Oh, does he have a gun or something? I mean, probably I'm assuming it was a little bit different, but you were, of course, a manager for, for, for those bands. Did you get from city to city people running up with a cassette tape and saying, hey, mate, listen to this. Uh, we're going to be bigger than GNR. We're going to be bigger than Clarence. We're gonna... like, did that happen a lot, or were you somewhat protected with security guards and environment and big stadiums where sort of the common folk, <laughs> for the lack of a better word, didn't get to you? Um, I, I was sensible about my anonymity, um, because, you know, where so many people live in fear of being anonymous, um, when you lose your anonymity, then you start to understand its values. Um, I did a stupid thing, a really stupid thing. I let, uh, I think it was about four seconds of my image go into a GNR um, video, Paradise City. And that was it after that. It was, I had no more anonymity. People knew who I was and what I looked like. And, you know, someone would come up and talk to you and use your first name and you start to worry about the fact that you've no idea who they are. Are you being rude? What context did you meet them in? And no, it's just somebody who's seen you from a video. Um, meantime, you're going through, you know, a little bit of social anxiety because you're going, well, he knows my name. Now I'm the putz who doesn't know his. Whereas in uh. point of fact, you, I had no reason to know his name. Um, you know, and Back in the day, I was sensible about where I placed myself. I, you know, I would keep myself out of harm's way as best I could, um, because you know there are some pretty interesting people out there. I mean, there were more than once the lights came up at a gig, and I'd turn around and look at the audience and go, "These motherfuckers scare the living shit out of me. Let's get on the bus and get going, because these guys are crazy." I can imagine. Um, I can imagine you know, that. Did. Uh... Did you, when people come up with you and start using your name, did, did were you thinking, am I getting Alzheimer's? Like, am, am I, is it me? Like, did you have one of those kind of things where you're just like, am I okay? Do I need to see a doctor? Because I can't remember anybody's name. Well, you'll probably find it's hard to understand, Mitch, but I am basically a shy person. 
And I always thought it was a God joke on me that I'd be in a situation where there would be a lot of people or a lot of people I hadn't met yet that I was having to talk to and deal with. And God would play a little joke on me and I, I would look at my then wife and not know her name. It would just clear out of my head. And it, it just seemed like, you know, this is God's way of saying, deal with it and learn how to deal with it and get better at it. Um, but, you know, it would it was something that that was triggered by being really a retiring person, um, believe it or not. Do you believe me that I tell you I'm retiring? I, I do. Well, listen, I, I would qualify myself as somewhat shy as well, but, you know, you sort of have to go on and, and say stuff, which is probably why I'm behind a microphone and not on a stage, but... Let me like let me just go back to Gino Vanelli. Of course, he he does have this new album called Wilderness Road, and I do encourage people to go check that out. But he had these albums, crazy. So five albums come out. They're they're in the top forty. They're selling well. He's playing mid-sized arenas. You know, he's not playing the LA Forum, but he's probably playing you know the Santa Monica Civic. You know, smaller, medium. But it's all albums. It's all album, album, album. No singles. Brother comes to him on the sixth album, Brother to Brother, in 1978, and says, okay, dude, you got to have a single. Um, how important, and, and sort of talk to me a little bit about the double-edged sword, because once you get a single and there's blood in the water, the record company goes, yeah, well, how about another single? And, how, and then you become the singles guy, but at the same time, if you're just the album guy, at some point... You're just sort of stuck in second gear, and you're never getting you're never getting to the large arenas. You're not doing the stadiums. You're not. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, well, no, exactly. I understand exactly where you're going with this and what you're saying. Um, you know, in, in, in personal experience, um, I've been in a position where a song has become a massive hit, and it was actually an albatross. Um, it placed the band in a perception that was completely counter to my long-term vision and strategy as a band. I mean, Great White to me were a live band and a road band, and that to me was the most profound way of building a following is actually going and playing for people and turning them on. Um, and of course, when you, when you get a radio hit, people come to hear the song. Um, and, you know, who's going to turn up? Um, Once Bitten, Twice Shy was an albatross, sold um, just shy of a million singles. So that kind of put a crimp in the perception of the band, you know. And, and, and there's always that weird resentment that other bands have, that, you know, when you, when you do have a, a hit like that. It's kind of... There's an envy and a jealousy and a resentment there um, and a disparagement, which is unfortunate you have to work around. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're a strong enough entity, then you can have a hit single and survive it. Um, Guns N' Roses definitely survived Sweet Child. And there was no mistaking of what and who they were. Um, so they managed to get get by with a huge hit single without it being um, having a negative impact on them but having a single is a mixed mixed blessing 
and you can start to find yourself slipping into that. Well, if top 40 don't pick up the next one, you're done. And if they don't pick up the one after that, you're really done. Whereas if you're a live band and you have established a good following through road work and you're consistent in your albums, then that's longevity. That's, you know, I mean, did Iron Maiden ever have a hit single? No. Did Led Zeppelin ever have a hit single? No. Um, they, they built it from the ground up and profoundly. You know, and it's interesting that you use Albatross, and, and folks that have listened to my interviews over the years have, have heard me tell the story of my conversations with Doug Feger, uh, God rest his soul, of, of The Knack. And, and I had a conversation with Doug backstage in Vermont one time, and I was we were talking about my Sharona, and he said, you know, Mitch, he goes, that, that's a golden Albatross. And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, it's, it's a song everybody knows. It's, it made you famous and it made you pop. He goes, yeah. He goes, I can't complain when I go home and I have my pool and I have my car and I have the house. That song paid for it. However, back at that time, I would go to the record company with an album and some new songs and they'd go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I don't hear another Maishrona. Go, go, go start over. And he said it became excessively, incredibly frustrating that no matter what song he brought, no matter what music he brought to the table, the record company would go, right, well, when you have My Sharona Part 2, come back to us. And so he said that became very, very disconcerting and, and sort of made him lose his appetite for continuing. And so it, it does have that effect where, yeah, okay, it'll pay for the car and the house and the pool and the, the vacation. But at the same time, if you're an artist it can really put a, a dagger in the heart of yeah. the art, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely it can. And uh, one more thing that I'm, I'm just going to get a comment from you on this. Uh, Gino Vanelli has a song out, and my Italian is awful. It is Parol per mio padre, words for my father, dedicated to his uh, late father who passed away, obviously. And Pope Jean Paul II heard the song and said, you have to come sing it at the Vatican. And he did. One of the great moments. How, in the... how on earth does the Pope get to hear that? I mean, does the Pope go spinning out in his mobile and turn up his stereo when no one's looking and go for a, a quick drive up through the Umbrian Mountains or whatever they're called in the middle of Italy? I mean, how does the Pope get to hear pop radio? Or well, rock radio. Well, listen, the, the album was on, uh, uh, well, the album was called Canto, and so it was more, uh, I don't want to say it was classical, but it was certainly different in terms of, it wasn't a pop record. Uh, and it was sung in English, Italian, Spanish, and French, right? That, I mean, that's, that's a hell of an accomplishment to have an album with four languages. And somehow in there, uh, I guess because it's it's this very... I don't want to say somber, but it, 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 deep, I guess, a deep song for, for, for his father that had passed away, words for my father. It, it, it got to the attention of the Pope. It was very sort of, I guess, spiritual, I guess is the word I'm looking at, spiritual in nature. And, right. he, and he had to perform it. And you can go to YouTube right now and you can type in Gino Vanelli, Parol per mio padre. And I, I know, I'm, I'm English, leave me alone. Uh, and you can see the performance and it, it is stunning. And uh, Gino talks in the interview about how he had an audience and the Pope basically vetted him and said, all right, you, your family, your wife, your kids, you come meet me 
and then we'll see if we can do this show. And uh, and m- maybe I'm sort of bastardizing the, the experience, but that's sort of what I understood. Isn't that amazing? I mean, could you imagine if if you were sitting there in L.A. and the Pope phone or the, the bishop phones you and say, hey, listen, we really like uh, House of Broken Love. We need Jack and the boys. To, I mean, what would you have done? Uh, I would have followed up because it's intriguing and eclectic. Um, it was actually going back to Gray White. Uh, one of the most interesting invitations I ever had was when uh, Rock Me was breaking and breaking all over rock radio. And um, what's his name? Devil went down to uh, wherever. Charlie Daniels. Charlie Daniels had a, a what he called the Charlie Daniels picnic um, at, out on the East Coast. And we got an invitation for Great White to play the Charlie Daniels picnic. And it was so left field that I, we were in the middle of a tour. I flew them all the way out to play the picnic and then flew them all the way back immediately after the uh, uh, performance so, so they could go and play this and then come back. Because it was just irresistible. It was so eclectic and such a charming invitation it's like, sure, we'll go and play, you know, for the country folk. You know, not sure why why you think the country folk want to hear, you know, an L.A. band doing Rock Me. But, hey, you've invited us. We're coming. That's interesting. I wonder if they, they sort of thought that there was a, a, a country ethos to what Great White was doing. Because, I mean, Great White is not a hair. To me, it's not a hair band. Uh, it, it was very much blues rock and and. You know, with a little bit of twang, some of those songs aren't that far from being sort of, you know, rock country, country rock. I mean, they're, you know, they're not they're not totally left field. So it's an, it's an interesting pick. And what I find interesting is when you talk about six degrees of separation, you know, I, I'm now sort of like one degree of separation away from a person that had an audience mm-hmm. with, with a pope, which is, you know, it's like, oh, OK, that, that, that's new for the for the. You know, that's a new feather for the cap, right? I mean, it's not every day that we have artists on here that have had audiences with a pope. So that's, that's have interesting. Have for the pope. I mean, you know, did Gene, Gino get his feet washed too? Because apparently the pope is really good at that. He goes off to uh, local prisons and washes the feet of criminals, which I think is an incredibly powerful symbol. It really is. And uh, just real quick, the, the album I'm looking up here, Canto, it is described as being Western classical music, which I'm assuming means sort of North American classical, which is probably different than traditional. I mean, I'm assuming I'm not, I'm not an expert in the classical realm. Anyway, we have uh, talked for 16 minutes. Uh, I Folks just want to sit back and listen to Gino Vanelli talk about black cars and hurts to be in love, and I just want to stop. So without further ado, here is the one and only former Montrealer, Gino Vanelli. We are speaking with Gino Vanelli. The new album, of course, is Wilderness Road. Gino, an absolute pleasure to talk to you tonight. Thank you. The pleasure is mine, too. Yes, so let me get into the new album here, because you started off your career as an album guy, you became sort of a singles guy, but the album has always been important to you. Talk to me about for not only the importance of an album and as one cohesive piece, but the importance of making new music in this day and age, rather than just going out and doing, okay, I've got my 10 greatest hits or my 50, but actually having something new to say. 
Well, that, that's, that's uh, an extra loaded question. First of all, I'll back up by saying that the one of the first um, singers that I would listen very closely to in its insofar as phrasing and arrangements and how it was recorded and choice of songs and lyrics was many of the late 50s, early early 60s Sinatra records. Now, I didn't know this, but, but Frank Sinatra was the first one who actually started the, con- the word concept album. That before Sinatra, people just slapped together a few a, a few singles, a few songs, and and called it something. As long as there was one song that sold the record, so Frank Sinatra was the first one that said, "No, I want to sort of give people a concert, a thematic concert, uh, a vinyl concert, if you will." And uh, so I grew up on that. And then, lo and behold, by the time you know the early seventies uh, came around, concept albums were aplenty. And I enjoyed concept albums as long as I enjoyed the concept, you know, the, the precept, you know, for, for the record. But I enjoyed it because I enjoyed it being put in a state or in a mood. So I always had an affinity for trying to achieve that in my records, whether it was Powerful People or Storm and Sun Up or just the Gemini and so on and so forth. Canto definitely was a concept record. It was a multi-language record, but it was an orchestral record. And my take on more of um, a, a sort of neoclassical style. Um, this record here, I really had a sort of an audio vision, and the audio vision was was to take a little bit of Americana, a little bit of folk, a little a little bit of soul, and a little bit of jazz, um, kind of fuse them together as if I was really knitting or crocheting. And not just sort of put them together disparately, but to really mix them together into a soup. And um, so the Americana would come with uh, writing a lot of the songs on the guitar or voicing them on the guitar, learning how to play slide guitar myself. Um, Or if I went to the piano, sticking more to sort of a a Tin Pan Alley soul approach, like in Wilderness Road or The Long Arm of Justice. And those parameters really gave this record a sound and a harmonic theme. Lyrically, I had um, collected, oh, 25 or 30 stories that I had some in poem and poetry form, some just sort of, you might say, notes on a napkin. And I had these pressing stories that I really wanted to share with, with, with people out there. Now, a lot of people told me, oh, who wants to hear these, you know, sort of depressing or too uh, too realistic, you know, real life stories. Uh, and I thought to myself, I said, no, I I think these need to be said. Songs like The Woman Upstairs, uh, like Ghost Train or West Wrestling with Angels, someone who was contemplating, you know, self-immolation. What does he do? He's got two angels by his side, one egging him on, the other one forbidding him, or at least trying to trying to uh, advise them the other way. So I had all these stories and um, I put them to music with the idea that they, it would be a fusion of America, soul, jazz, and and pop, obviously. And I stuck to that. I said, this is what I want for this record. Now, sometimes I overshot it or undershot it. Like in The Road to Redemption, it was originally written on guitar and it was th- it was two other songs before it became Road to Redemption. I think the song was called um, This Isn't the End. Then there was another one was called Road to Eldorado until I finally landed on Road to Redemption. And that's what I really wanted to say. And I sang it on the guitar. And it just, because it was very 
almost, you know, more than Americana turned almost country. I, I just didn't think my voice fit. Then suddenly I was looking at a movie one day and I think it was open range with Kevin Costner. And I was noticing the score and, and how the, I'm not sure if it was Mark Shaman who did it, but how the composer put these sort of country Americana chords to orchestra, much like Aaron Copeland did in the old days. I said, that's it. That's what I want to do to Road to Redemption. I want to keep the chords and all the harmony as if it was Americana country style, but I'm going to pretend that Schubert was at the piano interpreting it. And that's how Road to Redemption came around. So the idea was, was to, to push the envelope in any way I could, yet really adhere to the initial concept that I had. And it turned out great. I mean, it, it really is a, a pensive, pensive album. Now, in this day and age of streaming, the Spotify's, the Apple Music and stuff, have we lost the concept of an album? Is it still a thing? Are we down to just songs now? Uh, you know, it all depends on uh, what you believe in, uh, maybe what generation you're from. Uh, I mean, people that are over 40 or 50 or 60 are not dead. They listen. And, you know, things things mean something in their lives. They read books. They're still growing. They still want to know. They want to know what, what motivates, you know, them to, towards happiness, towards peace, towards, um, you know, family uh, reconciliation towards um, a, a lot of things that people have grappled with. And sometimes I think they're the better audience. Uh, I mean, when we were kids, we were good audiences because music was the only thing around. Uh, today, of course, I, I, I empathize or I sympathize, you know, with a lot of younger people because they got a million distractions. So it's harder for them to sit down, put on a set of earphones and listen to a whole record read through the lyrics and go, go with the artist. Some still do, but that's rare. Um, but that's okay too, because, um, you know, the record company is going to release one or two songs and hopefully, hopefully one or two songs appeals to, to an audience that is not quite used to the concept record. It would still not alter my wish to do what I wanted to do. Absolutely not. And, and, and by the way, I'm glad you have a record and I'm glad there's physical product because speaking to Alice Cooper not long ago, he said uh, about streaming, I would rather not own air, which I've always thought was <laughs> right. I mean, you, you don't own, you, you own air. Um, but let me go back to the early days here. Uh, Crazy Life, 73. Powerful People, 74. And then 75. And Just a Gemini, 76. And 70. You had an album out every year, basically, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Talk mm-hmm. to me about that work ethic because that is something that we've lost now. Now when you see a, an album cycle, it's it comes out, they do a tour, then they do a second leg and a third leg, and four years later you get the follow-up album and you go, huh, okay. But in the 70s, if you took four years off, that means people forgot who the heck you were. Um, this is true. Right. It, there was more of an album ethic in, in, in those days because you know, making albums or making singles, making music was everything there was, not only to the artists, but to people. I, I remember I mean, being a child and, and, and getting, let's say, the new Tumbleweed Connection record by Elton John. 
I would look over that cover as if it was, um, you know, a Chagall, you know, you know, or, or um, you know, a, a priceless painting. And and you look at the cover artwork, the inner cover, the inner artwork, and then the back and the credits and, and who Gus Dudgeon was and how it was done at this studio outside of London, and and Buckmaster did the strings and da 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 and so on. And you listen to the record and you go, how did they do that? That's so interesting. And so you you'd almost listen to it like you would read a book. Um, and that that was something that. I got used to doing, and that was something that was the joy of being a teen in the 60s, 70s, maybe even the 80s, and partly the 90s. Kids have a different joy today. I mean, they're, I mean, just video games alone. We didn't have video games. I mean, there are people that spend 10 hours, you know, 12 hours, sometimes 24 hours. And, and, and in fact, it, it has become an actually, a, you know, almost a... Um, well, it's classified as an addiction, right? It's it's classified as he an was, addiction. Uh, yeah. And and, and it, of course, it can be. Uh, we had Pong. Don't forget. Yeah, but later on, uh, you know, late sixties, early seventies, it was just just music. Uh, and uh, but you know, I mean, everybody, every generation has their has their their way to rebel to be a fractious child, you know. They they did so. Okay, so you mentioned you know sitting down and reading the lyrics, which which. I did and you did. We all did way, sat there hours after hours, studying them, memorizing them. And you mentioned artwork. How important was the artwork to what you were doing? Because you look at, a lot, especially a lot of the heavy metal bands, the Black Sabbaths and the Iron Maidens and the Kisses, it, it went together. You really, the, the music and the artwork and the visual presentation were one. How important was it for you and what you were doing? Was it one or was it two very separate things? You, you know what I mean? It, it it was important, but not super important to me. Um, to, for some reason, you know, what I was doing musically and and how I was portrayed and portrayed myself didn't necessarily coincide till much later when people got used to it. Uh, in the beginning, people thought they were really antithetical to each other. Um, the music was quite sophisticated, yet I. I, I I seem to represent to many people just this, this dim-witted hunk, you know. And um, it really wasn't that at all. I just saw myself as a sort of um, a little bit of a romantic figure in, in the sense of a romantic era figure. Uh, but more importantly, um, and those were the days where people would go in front of a camera and bite a pigeon's head off or... They'd go in front of, of in front of an audience with a duck costume, or David Bowie would ex, expose his testicles, you know, in a picture or on stage. Um, so I, being a little outrageous, having tall boots or, you know, a, a silky open shirt or something like that, didn't seem so outrageous to me. But a lot of people thought it was actually more outrageous than the more outrageous costumes. <laughs> It was. Um, talk to me a little bit about brother to brother. Um, and first of all, of course, working with your brothers, uh, incredible stuff over the years. And of course, Joe has done all kinds of albums, REO Speedwagon stuff. But yep. the brother to brother album, uh, sort of the, the landmark album or the one that 
and and correct me if I'm wrong, but to, at least to me is the one that okay, you had your following, but this one puts you on the map. Obviously, I just want to stop is on there. Um, you were sort of an album artist with a with a huge following, and the story is your brother comes to you and says, "You got a huge following, but we can make it bigger." And talk to me about True. that. Yeah, so talk to me about that moment. I didn't and- want to do it. I really didn't want to do it. I, di- I didn't want to um, jump headlong, headfirst into the mainstream because I had a feeling I might drown. I was very happy exploring. It's not that I was, you know, content like a, you know an oyster just sitting there. I wanted to explore music. Uh, I was talking to Michel Colombier at the time about doing an album with him. I, I want to. I was talking to Bernard Purdy about him joining the group, and I was trying to explore new things. And um, when my brothers started talking to me about, well, you know, exactly what you're saying. You know, you've got a good following, but it could be three times bigger. And I said, well, I'm not going to just chase a hit single. I'm just not. If it comes my way, fine. So one day uh, Ross shows up at the house and he has much of the song, you know, I just want to stop, you know, written. And, and of course I said, yeah, let, let's, let's, let's work on that. And it, and it obviously turned out to be a very, very big hit. And then I knew I had to follow it up because people expected me to follow it up. Uh, I got a good record deal with, with Arista and I'm like, okay, so I, I, I need to do it. And so there was a lot of pressure and I, 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 I came up with living inside myself. So another top 10 single. And then I had some differences with, with Arista. And so we broke up, but I still had that pressure. And so black cars was probably one of my bigger worldwide singles as was hurts to be in love and wild horses and in, in maybe 20 countries. It was top 10. And then by the time you know, 1987 rolled around, I just said, that's it. I, I just had it with this. I, I don't want to chase this anymore. This is not fun. It, it's a numbers game. It, it's 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 almost like going to your accountant and saying, if I invest so much here, how much will my return be? Um, or your stockbroker. And I, I, I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted to sit down, stay at the piano for hours on end, into the wee hours, and just explore what was in the closet. Did it? take away a sense of being an artist and you just became sort of a cash cow in a sense of if, if, I, if that's the proper way to express it did, did it sort of take away from the artistry like we're, when you listen to black cards and you listen to wild horses and you listen to those songs which are great singles did it seem less authentic it, part of me said well this is good for what it is and make no make no bones about it. I mean, coming up with a hit single is no easy task because you've got to really condense everything you know in three and a half or four minutes. And it's it's like writing a jingle or you know writing an aphorism. You know, there are, you can probably at the top, in top of your head you can only remember maybe five to ten great mottos or aphorisms. You know, um, so you have to write this thing is going to be memorable, you know, instantly. So it's not an easy thing, but there's part of you that says, you know, I, I can do, I can do more than this. You know, I have more inside of me than just chasing this. And it was kind of fun, you know, to do black cars. It was fun doing the video in London. It was fun to see it, you know, go up the charts and be a, be a gold single. And it was, yes, but, but there's, there's a, 
there's a point in time where you say, okay, this is, I was nearing 40 years old. And I was saying, I've had it with this. I, I really have other things I want to do before or lest I become a parody of myself and I become one of those monkeys that I see, you know, on stage that I do not want to be. Right. So, well, and I'm going to move on from black cars in one second, but I just want to ask you one thing about it. Cause I was in grade 10 yeah. at the time. It was all over much music. I guess if you're in the States, MTV, but all over much music here, how powerful was the visual medium and, and videos to your career? Because you, you go back to 73, 74, of course we didn't have it. And if we did, you know, maybe the CBC would have shown a, you know, two in the morning. It, it certainly wasn't as ubiquitous as the eighties with MTV and much music. How did that affect your career? And, and did you consider yourself a video star? Was that a comfortable thing for you to be making videos? I never had a problem with any of that. Um, and black cars was certainly a, as much a, a visual song as it was an audio song. Um, the director saw to that. I was quite surprised with, with the cast that he had assembled. <laughs> but, um, you know, and so was wild horses, you know, wild horses had a, had a look to it. You know, the, the director had a, had an idea and I walked and I said, yeah, I, I think this is gonna, it's gonna be cool. Um, but it was the whole idea of just chasing top 40 radio, chasing, you know, the, the top 20 charts and all that. It just, it just narrows your, your sights get very, very narrow. You keep aiming for one thing and everybody, everybody judges you by this one thing. And I just didn't want to do that anymore. But of course the flip side is that you have to be ready to live with whatever success or failure or anything in between happens to you. If you roam, if you, if you will, if you get off the reservation and I, I, I really, I, I really uh, absconded from the reservation very, very quickly by the early nineties. And, um, I recorded an album called yonder tree, which was my love of combo jazz, piano, bass, and drums, basically. And my ability to write, that kind of stuff that I had inside of me songs like Walter Whitman, where are you or unbearably blue? Um, um, yeah, I die a little more each day, which still today, you know, stand as, as good songs. So I had more inside of me and as would be recognized by some, uh, with slow love and then the Canto album, which was basically an orchestral, you know, record. So uh, knowing that I had so much more inside of me, it's not that I disparage against or belittle black cars or wild horses or hurts to be in love, that, that epic of, of, of my career in life. It's just that I just know that I had more and it was time to throw that, give up that belt or throw that towel in, put it that way. Yeah. And, and I'm going to ask you just, just this about songwriting. When you're writing, of course, you know, for, for, for crazy life and powerful people and, and, and there's no sort of visual medium, you just write the song and, and people can listen to it and whatever pictures show up in their head is what they see. Mm -hmm. When you're writing Black Cars and you know there's going to be a video and you know there's going to be much music, and you, do you change how you approach songwriting and say, no. okay, no, okay, so there's no, no, there's no visual no. component of... No. Okay. No, I, Good. I, I don't want to <laughs> write with a crutch. Okay. No, no, I never, I never approached it that way. In fact, I had black cars look better in the shade, and I had under the cover of night. I, got, I had three or four lines, and all the music written. 
went to see a friend of mine, Roy Freeland, who now writes for Steven Spielberg, uh, his, his company, uh, scripts and all. Um, I, I went to Roy's house in Malibu and I said, look, I got this song, you know, called Black Cars. And that, to tell you the truth, it just kind of came out of my, you know, my, 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 my recesses and I don't know what it's about. And um, so I can't tell you what it's about either. But he said, you know, why don't you go and just sit on a Hollywood Boulevard bench and watch people go by? You just might get some ideas. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. So for two days, I parked myself, uh, I think it, near Sunset and Gower, and watched people trample upon the stars on the sidewalk and all kinds of characters, but nothing too interesting until this one lady came along with sort of yarrow root makeup, white cake makeup, you know, really pasted on her face and actually accentuating, you know, the crevices even more so. And um, almost, you know, a li- not quite, but a little bit like the Joker. Um, she had a kerchief on and, and um, uh, up-pointed sunglasses, dark shades, and a fake black fur on with black net stockings. And of she looked to be near or just about middle-aged. Um, and I said, oh, my God, it's, it's as if she's a phantom, a ghost, and she's waiting for someone to recognize her at Rexall Drugstore, like Lana Turner or something like that. And she struck me as being a very Gloria Swanson type. I said, she's the interesting one. She She's the one that I've got to write about. But I said, I don't know what it has to do with black cars. So I started thinking about it, thinking about it. I went home, I said, okay, let me do something that's sort of zen-like. I owned a Z28 at the time, a black one. And so I said, the car needs waxing. So it was a bright, sunny day, and I started waxing the car. And every time I'd polish it, I'd go on the shady side, and that side was perfectly black, perfectly shiny. I could see my face clear in it. Every time i go on the sunny side, I could never get the streaks or the scratches perfectly even, perfectly erased. And it suddenly dawned on me that she would avoid the sun. And she tried to keep to the shade as much as she could. And I said, she's exactly like this black car. And that's why black cars look better in the shade. It's just a metaphor for her. That is awesome. That is a great story. Um, uh, Excuse my pronunciation on this because I'm not uh, Italian, but uh, parole per mio padre, words for my father. See, I I do my best. Uh, But of course, that comes out and it comes to the attention of the Pope. I mean, you sit here and you say, well, Mitch LaFond listens to your songs. Great. But now the Pope is is listening to your music and says, hey, you got to come to the Vatican and perform this. Um, What was that like? I mean, that's that's a whole different level of, I don't know, acceptance or whatever you want to call it. But what was that moment like? And then getting there and performing it Uh, nervous or just another show? Well, I I, because they asked me and the Pope asked me directly to come. uh, It was on his direct wishes that the bishop called me at the house and and wanted me to perform for Jean Paul. Um, John Paul, Pope John Paul, granted me an, um, an audience with him, and uh, not only with me, but with my wife and my son. He wanted to know my family, so I said that is very, very, very gracious, and I'm going to study his life. I'm going to at least return the favor by understanding something about him. And he was a special kind of guy. 
He played a great part in the resistance in World War II. Of course, everybody understands how he helped bring down the Iron Curtain, how he helped free Poland. Um, his bravery was amazing. He was shot once or twice, you know, uh, many attempts on his life. He was a playwright. He was a poet. Um, he tried to bridge the gap, although not so gracefully between many religions, but at least he tried. So I said, I, I, I'm really looking forward to meeting this man. And, um, I did, uh, and it was momentous and I, I, I'll remember it. I mean, there was some, you know, I'd say humorous parts to it, um, but that's for another day. And I'll finish with this because I see we're going to run out of time here. But uh, Herb Albert, Alpert, Alpert, uh, yeah. how important was he to your overall career? Yes, you ran up to him and he said, okay, come over to A&M. But looking back on it now, is that sort of, that's the moment it, it, among all other moments? You know, everything reaches a critical mass. Right. Um, the critical mass sometimes can make you realize that this is not for me. It could be a relationship. could be a job. You know, it could be a movie you're watching. You, you get in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, you go, I had enough. Right? Well, same thing with a career. Or a life, you can say. Uh, for five, since out of high school. I had been searching desperately. I had an RCA contract when I was 17. Then I, I left McGill and I went to and moved to New York for a year and a half. Almost got a record deal and almost got my career off the ground. And then I came back, earned some money in Montreal, and then left for L.A. four months later. I mean, I stayed there for almost four months. Uh, and when Herb signed me, it was that moment of five or six years of trying. And I remember when you're 17 and you're 20 years old, about to be 21, it's about three and a half years. Three and a half years of that age is an eternity. It might as well be 30 years. Your mind is, is you know, operating at speed of light. And so every day seems, you know, like slow-mo. So when Herb signed me um, and got personally involved, we became friends and became personal advisor I took that to heart. I mean, I really, I really understood that here was a guy who knew something. Not only, you know, did he know something about his own success and how he created it, but he had signed some of, the, you know, the best artists in the world. I mean, you know, A&M had Cat Stevens, they had Joe Cocker, they had Quincy Jones, they had the Carpenters, they eventually had the Police, they, you know, so on and so forth. So, so Herb's advice and Herb's words really did mean a lot to me, and he was smart enough to know when to put up or actually and shut up. He actually was smart enough to know when I was onto something that even he didn't agree with or didn't like personally, but he thought it was something I was onto something. He didn't like the synthesizers and things of that nature with powerful people. It wasn't his cup of tea. So he just told me, look, I'll executive produce, but you, you seem to know where you're going. Just do it. So that's a, that's a rare kind of association with the record company. It, it really is. And uh, I will just, uh, as we run out of time here, I'll remind folks that uh, Wilderness Road is available now. And of course, uh, you will be in Montreal at the end of the month. Gino, an absolute, absolute pleasure. I have um, been a fan 
and and I love what you do, and I love your voice, and of course, though though I know Black Cars is, is sort of a, not it's sort of the antithesis of your entire career in a sense, but that moment sort of captures my 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 youth, and so thank you. For yeah, that. it's it is a it's a, it's just a moment. It's just a peak True. moment, and and along the grass, you know, this album here was just a, a labor of love. I didn't care if a record company bought it or not bought it. I just had these stories. I want to tell them. I want to tell them in a particular way. And um, as the, you know, uh, this 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 fellow named named Claude Villani, who owns SRG Records, who who does business with Universal and other major companies, just fell in love with the record and and it's out. So I mean, funny. Sometimes you really work hard, you know, uh, to pursue that commercial goal. And sometimes you just work hard to pursue that artistic goal, and it sort of dovetails yeah, with and, with your unintended commercial goal. Yeah, it, and it worked out great. And uh, as we say uh, up here in Montreal, because I'm in Montreal also, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Okay, Mitch. Merci. Bye bye. Right, Cheers. Bye bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. Mitch Lafon.